When we just think about the hard, we tend to ruminate, we tend to stew, but when we can get it out and we can tell our stories, then we can actually process that pain more easily. And I also just think there's something really brilliant in being able to give your struggle a beginning, a middle, and an end. I felt things so big and I and I wanted to shut that up because I didn't know how to manage it, right? Because it would be like, why are you crying? Why are you so mad? Why are you so excited? Like, my emotions were just massive. Anorexia not eating allowed me to quiet all of that. It allowed me to quiet the perfectionism. It allowed me to quiet the anxiety, the depression, the mania, anything that was too big. I could just quiet it by starving myself. My best friend was also anorexic, it's called tandem anorexics, so was kind of going through the same thing. She jumped out of a car en route to being hospitalized with me. My friend dying in my eating store isn't something that happened to me, it's part of my story. Hey, it's Michael, and this is the Kintsugi Podcast. I'll be back in a minute with this week's conversation about resilience. But first, if you wish to create a better life and have a better career, then please visit michaelobrienshift.com and download your free workbook on how to create a better life. In it, you'll discover ways to find more energy for the things and the people who matter most to you so you can create a better tomorrow. It's Michael, and welcome to the Kintsugi Podcast and another conversation about resilience. This week's conversation is with a mom of three, a wife, a Jersey girl, a difference maker, and someone who's putting a beautiful ripple of energy into the world. Over the years, she has taught herself how to become resilient and live life as an optimist. This week's conversation is with Megan Murphy. It's the Murphy and O'Brien show, Kintsugi, Irish style. She shares her story and her pathway to her Kintsugi and her resilience. I hope you love our conversation. I know I did. Before you drop in and listen, we did talk about topics that are sensitive, like eating disorders and suicide. So please listen with care and compassion. And I hope you find Megan's perspective as valuable as I did. Well, hello, Murphy. This is O'Brien. So we have the Murphy and O'Brien show. (laughs) We're like leprechauns. We're like leprechauns. It's an old Seinfeld reference for anyone who loves Seinfeld. Um, It's not. My maiden name is Buchan. I married a Murphy. Uh, But still Irish though, right? I was Scottish and Austrian. Oh, nice. Yes, but I married an Irishman. And my dad, my late father was like, take that name as quick as you can. It's such a good name. <laughs> it is a pretty good name. With the spelling of Megan, though, I thought maybe you're Irish. Yeah, it's funny. It's Well, my mom's grandparents were from Dublin. So my great-grandparents were from Dublin on my mom's side. Okay, that's cool. Well, I married a Scott. Okay. So we have... She's got really great hair. Like the Scots have really good hair. I didn't get that part then. You didn't get that part. That's okay. You got other parts. So my wife and I love relationship stories. Like when you first met your partner. Mm -hmm. So how did you meet this Irish boy, Murphy? So he's my brother's best friend. So there's no like cute meeting I've known in my whole life. I'm four years older than my husband. He's my younger brother's best friend. So I've known my husband since he was in second grade. He's always been around my house. He's always been around my brother. And we even went to the same college. Like I would try to get his girlfriend's internships and like set him up on dates. Like I always thought he was a great guy. But you know, when you're growing up, four years is kind of a lot of time. I mean, imagine like I was in eighth grade and there were fourth graders. Like it wasn't like, ooh, Patrick Murphy. He's so cute. Even when I I was a senior, they were freshmen. Like that was just not happening. 
it wasn't until I was in my 30s and my brother would have us over for dinner a lot. I was single and he happened to be single and he would have us over for like Sunday dinners. And I realized that he liked salt as much as I liked salt and that he would never judge me for my salt intake. And we were also reading the same book, A Million Little Pieces by James Fry. And I was like, oh yeah. I can't believe he reads. He's smart. I like, I, like, I always just thought he was like this hot athlete. I didn't realize he also had brains. And then one day we made out and then eventually got married. Well, how about that? He's a hot athlete who reads and loves salt. Yeah. <laughs> those, those are good ingredients for a long marriage. And so you have three kids, right? We have three kids. Yep. Yeah. So you have a Brooks. We were going to name. One of our daughters, if she was a boy, Brooks. So the name Aww. Brooks has a special place in our heart. It's a cool name. I Like he's such a little, so my daughter is Charlie. My oldest is Charlie. She's 13. And then I have an 11-year-old James and a 10-year-old Brooks. Very cool. Awesome. All right. So I always love to ask this question when I sit down with someone. Before this moment, what is something good that's happened to you today? Oh, so much. Uh, Well, I got to work out and I'm always very grateful to be able to fit in fitness. And I had a really fun lady on the treadmill next to me who was like screaming and cheering herself on. And the energy was so infectious and contagious that I really enjoyed it. And she apologized for being so loud. And I was like, never apologize. Like if that motivates you, yay. And P.S., you made me work a little harder. So thank you. That's really cool. I love that. Yeah. A little sort of pep talk because we can talk so harshly to ourselves. Mm-hmm. So there was a moment in public where she was speaking. She was cheering herself on on the treadmill. It was so great. She was like, woo, woo, like you got this, like, but loudly. And I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. That is so cool. I love that. I love that. All right. So let's start here. It just as we sit down and have this chat and other people get to know who you are. So when you think about organizing your life around values or first principles, what are those valuables and first principles that help you organize your life, your orientation to how you show up in the world? Sure. So I live by the three F's and that is my filter for everything. And it's fun, family, and freedom. So whenever I move through the world, I ask myself, is it going to be fun? Because if it's not going to be fun, maybe I want nothing to do with it. Will my family be proud? Will they be supportive? Does it impact them positively? And how does it impact my freedom? Is it going to like step on the toes of my freedom? Because then it's also a no. So I sort of look at everything through the lens of fun, family, and freedom because those are my core values and the things that matter most to me in life. I love that. So the bumper sticker I quote most frequently is by American philosophers Ben and Jerry. (laughs) That ran a small ice cream company. And the bumper sticker is, if it ain't fun, why do it? And that that is a guiding principle in my life. Yep. So I love that you led with fun. And I am, yeah. So like I, my secret sauce in life is a fun filter and I can fun filter anything. That's very cool. So another question I'd like to ask is around intention. So as you come into this conversation, I have my intention, but I didn't know if you had an intention, a word to describe how you wanted to show up, would it be fun or is it something else? I don't give things that much thought. Okay, cool. So like I just come into everything wanting to just experience it for what it is without a lot of preconceived notions or intentions. I sort of live that way. And not to say that I'm not prepared in life because obviously we prepare to show people we respect them, especially audiences, right? Like if I don't show up prepared, that means I don't respect you. But I also don't love to live life in any kind of like rehearsed or expected way. So I come into most things without any expectations or intentions. I like that. That's cool. That's really cool. Well, as you know, this is not scripted. or (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I'll be honest, like I was, I got off a call with my Today Show producer and I had three minutes to eat lunch and I like just pound it like leftover chicken wings and my hands are still like greasy. And, but I was like, I got to eat something. So like, there's no time for intention setting, to be honest. And that's okay. That's perfectly fine. So this is a more important question then. 
what was the spice level of your chicken wings? Well, I got naked wings, which my husband had warned me would be very boring. And it was, but I am normally a very spicy lady. My kids and I like, like things hot, hot, hot. All right, cool. I like that. So I'm a little bit on the spice side. Although as I've gotten older, I know my spice tolerance has diminished. The tolerance for everything diminishes as we age. Yeah, which is not like a, a thing that makes me completely happy, but I'm meeting the moment as the moment calls for. So as we talk about Kintsugi and resilience, I would love to start off, this is a two-part question, so I'm going to ask you the first part now and the second part later. Sure. When you were younger, what was your relationship like with perfectionism? So I was very much a perfectionist and it led me down all kinds of bad paths. I was very like black or white. So it had to be the best or it was nothing. And I really expected a lot from myself. I had very high standards. And it's funny because my parents didn't impose that upon me. I imposed it upon myself. Mm. And where do you think that came from? Was there an outside influence? Clearly not your parents, but... No, I'm just an intense person. I'm like very driven. And I often feel like if I'm not going to do it well, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I do everything with all of me. And I think as a kid, it was hard to separate. But I think I wasn't honestly... When I look back at my life, I think the hardest thing for me as a young human was that I had these very big swirling emotions. I'm an empath. I feel things very deeply. It's what ultimately made me a good actress when I studied acting in college and did a little acting. But I think like for me, all the trouble in my teen years really stemmed from trying to quiet emotions that I didn't know what to do with. And perfectionism was probably part of that, but it was just this big, I felt things so big and I, and I wanted to shut that up because I didn't know how to manage it, right? Because it would be like, why are you crying? Why are you so mad? Why are you so excited? Like my emotions were just massive. And I wound up developing a, a really life-threatening eating disorder trying to quiet it. So like anorexia, not eating, allowed me to quiet all of that. It allowed me to quiet the perfectionism. It allowed me to quiet the anxiety, the depression, the mania, anything that was too big. I could just quiet it by starving myself. So in your in your book, you write about that. Mm-hmm. And I loved your book. So I, I have it, read through it, and there was a whole bunch of yay. And so the title of the book, for those that don't know, is A Fully Charged Life. You started writing it during the pandemic. I started it before the pandemic. I finished it in the pandemic. Yeah. Okay. And you talk about this difficult period of time in high school with your eating disorder and a friend and just that struggle. And when we're in high school, the emotions are really big. You know, even current day as adults, the emotions are really big. Yeah. And when we're younger, we don't necessarily have a fully developed brain to process all of those emotions. Mm-hmm. So can you share a little bit more about those high school days and what you went through? And what I'm really interested in is as you went through that, how did you get through it? Mm -hmm. Because it's intense and again, ever so common current day for a lot of teenagers and a lot of teenage girls. So my eating disorder really came to a head my sophomore and junior year of high school. You know, I was a very competitive athlete, but I wound up passing out on a soccer field. I wound up crashing my car. I mean, I just was like, you know, I mean, I was running on fumes and it, it led to some dire consequences. I wound up in the hospital three times for very long stays, just trying to refeed. And, you know, my parents were really on top of it. And I spent a lot of time in the hospital, inpatient therapy, outpatient therapy, all the things. And my best friend was also anorexic, it's called tandem anorexics. So was kind of going through the same thing. Um, and ultimately, she passed away very tragically. She jumped out of a car en route to being hospitalized with me in this inpatient program. And that was, you know, I was 16 years old. It was just shy of our our 17th birthdays. And it, it was a lot. I mean, it was um, it was very, very intense because there was a lot of guilt, right? I had talked to her on the hospital payphone just minutes before, like, it's not going to be so bad. Like, just join me. We'll fake them out. Like, we'll get through this, whatever. And that was it. Like, she 
you know, was in, in the car, kind of had a fight with her mom and, you know, as a moody teenager might do, like being dramatic, but not necessarily anticipating the consequences, you know, she passed away and it was, it was horrific. I, I wound up um, moving in with my aunt and uncle, my senior year of high school and an, and an hour away because I just couldn't face my peers. I couldn't face school. And like, thankfully my parents did that for me because I was like, I can't face these people. Like I felt, I felt a level of guilt and responsibility for her death. And I still was not doing that well myself. So my parents really, like it was, it was incredible that they had this forethought to say, hey, you know what? You're going to go move in with your aunt and uncle in Sussex. You're going to go to a different high school, going to be with your three little cousins and like have this different life for a year. And that was very, very healing for me because I just could be a different person. I didn't have to have all that baggage. I didn't have to talk about it. I didn't have to have that on my conscience for a year. And, you know, in the, I was still going through a lot of therapy. I mean, I was in therapy for years, ultimately then moved into the college and did okay, right? Like, I mean, I wasn't cured. You got to eat every day and that's hard when you have this history. Ultimately, though, you know, I wrote an essay about my experience. I wrote an essay about overcoming adversity and I was named a Horatio Alger National Scholar. And that afforded me the opportunity to be on an NBC special. So I was on NBC and it was like Trisha Yearwood performed and Don Johnson and Bob Costas were the MCs. And it was like a pretty big deal. And it really kind of inadvertently launched my journalism career, right? I wound up having all these newspapers calling and saying, can we, can we write about you? Magazines calling, we want to tell your story. And ultimately that I wound up as a cub reporter at the Star Ledger in New Jersey. And as I got an internship at YM Magazine, by virtue of making my mess my message, sharing my story. And so I was very grateful for that. Like in that vulnerability of sharing, it really did wind up catapulting my career in the craziest way possible. Yeah, there's something about like some of our lowest moments, how they can, the quote, no mud, no lotus comes to mind. You know, that the muddiest moments, the most difficult moments, how years later, a lotus can bloom. Yeah. You know, on top of the lily pad. I find that, and sometimes it's hard to talk about things when you're in them, um, and sometimes you can't talk about them till you're through them, but I have found in my life, the more I talk about the hard, the easier it gets. I connect with other people. Um, You know, I, I I do a lot of talking and speaking on resilience, and I do think Dr. Charney and Dr. Southwick, two of the leading resilience researchers, talk about that, telling our stories how incredibly important that is. And one of the key reasons that is so important is because it reminds you that you're an expert in your own life and you have the ability to impact and help others. And reminding and being reminded of that has helped me build incredible resilience. Yeah, I also found that in my in my experience, like talking about it was almost like talk therapy, mm-hmm. like sharing that story. And I would say the research also does, like says, talking about it versus thinking about it, right, is incredibly effective because when we just think about the hard, we we tend to ruminate, we tend to stew, but when we can get it out and we can tell our stories, then we can actually process that pain more easily. And I also just think there's something really brilliant in being able to give your struggle a beginning, a middle, and an end. So that it becomes something that you've moved through and is part of your journey versus something that happened to you, right? Like my friend dying and my eating sore isn't something that happened to me. It's part of my story. It's part of my journey. And understanding it as such really helps me feel more capable of coping. Yeah, no, I can totally get that. I do want to acknowledge just that experience and the loss. You know, I could just, I really can't even begin to imagine what you were going through at that age. And I would say like, now that I have a daughter who's like a teenager, like not far away from that, you know, like it does seem to like, it's, oh my goodness, that was really insane what I went through. But I've kind of like, you know, that was so many years ago that until I've now raising my own kids, I hadn't really processed just how hard that was. Yeah, and as a parent, yeah, you see your parents as you shared this, Megan. I'm thinking back then we didn't know much of anything mm-hmm. compared to what we know now. Hundred percent. And I'm thinking, good 
on your mom and dad for giving you a almost a blank canvas. Like we're going to move you again. No pressure with social media growing up. No, I think we're sort of in the same generation. Yep, not the same age, but same generation. So no social media to worry about. Fresh slate, Megan. We're going to move you to your uncle. And the reality is, like, I don't even know how my my dad has passed. I have no idea how they got to that decision or got to that place. But man, I think it saved me because I don't think I could have faced, you know, a high school full of people who knew what I had been through. I couldn't have done it. No, it's a holy Moses moment. Like, wow, mom and dad, like huge. And, you know, to all the moms and dads out there now, like to find out a way to drum up the confidence that you might know the way. Yeah. And the courage to make maybe what is a very hard decision. So you talked about your parents, obviously instrumental in helping you get through this, talking it out, therapy, other tools. What other things helped you get through that moment and even your current hard moments? What do you lean on? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that I, so of course I've studied resilience since having had some of these experiences. And I think something that's always really incredible for me is having a mentor in any of these situations. And it's never been a career mentor for me. It's always been a grief mentor or a resilience mentor, someone that can model for me that this too shall pass. Because I think sometimes when we're in something really awful and really hard, having proof that someday it will be okay is really, really, really important. Because when you're really in something hard, sometimes it just feels like this is my new reality. It will never get better. It will never be okay. And you just need sometimes that that proof, that evidence, the receipts that this too shall pass. And I have found that sometimes that's somebody I meet at the gym, somebody that sometimes that's a celebrity or an author or somebody I see on social media. It's just somebody who's come out the other side of whatever it is I'm working through. I love that. Now, having mentorship, people have traveled the road maybe before you mm-hmm. say, you know what, we're going to get through this. And it's like, you might not even need their advice or guidance. You just need them to show you that you will get out the other side. I talk about that. When my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, he was diagnosed with stage four and I knew we didn't have long. And I was, there was a day I was like on the treadmill, a lot of treadmill stories today, but I was on the treadmill at Orange Theory And I just started crying. I just couldn't control myself. And the woman next to me came up to me after class and she's like, are you okay? And I said, I'm not. My dad's dying and I'm not okay. And it turns out like her father had died from pancreatic cancer 10 years earlier. And it just was this very clear example to me that someday I wouldn't be crying on the treadmill. Someday I would have lost my father to pancreatic cancer, but I wouldn't be crying on the treadmill. Like I would function in the day. Like I could get through a workout without crying. And she was just that proof for me that I would, like someday it wouldn't hurt this much, that I would function differently. And it was like, I mean, I looked to her throughout the time, like, okay, someday it's going to be better. I love that. So in your book, you talk about yay a lot. Mm -hmm. You have an Instagram handle around yay. So what is yay for those that don't know? So yay is joy. Finding the yay is my way of saying finding joy. Appreciating yay is a way of practicing gratitude. It's sort of a fun filtered approach to living with gratitude, right? Having an attitude of gratitude, pausing to appreciate. I also really love mantras and the power of words. And I just find saying yay really energizing and empowering. And it just kind of captures what I'm about. I love that. So I'm an optimistic person like yourself. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that pulled me towards you when I first heard you speak was just this whole concept of yay. Because I first heard you speak before the pandemic. Oh, really? Where? At Chris and Jennifer's Connection Unfair Advantage Summit Conference. I'm not sure what the right noun is. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I heard you speak and I was like, oh, wow. Like this this is a gal, this is a woman that's sort of like, I love her vibe. So just that was the start of it. And then sort of followed you like from a distance from that, got your book, all that jazz. So as someone though, where you clearly come across as filled with gratitude, filled with yay, a lot of positivity, 
I think you studied positive psychology. So I studied acting. Okay. My degrees in acting from Mason Gross at Rutgers. But I always talk about, so I was at, ultimately fast forward, I wound up having this magazine career. And I was a senior editor at Cosmopolitan Magazine. And my editor-in-chief gave me an assignment. And like back in the day, you know, it was like, what the cover line is the seven secrets of happiness. Then she would just turn to me and say, okay, figure out what that is. Sure. And this was like pre-Google, right? Like, so I had to actually do some research. And that's when I delved into the field of positive psychology. And that was when I kind of discovered Martin Seligman and the Perma Theory of Wellness and kind of really realized for myself that happiness was something you could do, right? Like happiness wasn't this like elusive, don't worry, be happy thing. You could do happy. There were action steps, micro actions you could take to live with more optimism and more joy by virtue of filling the buckets of the perma theory of wellness. Yes, I love it. I'm familiar with the work and I just, I love that it came into your life in that way, like just on assignment to fill a list. And I always like to say this too, because like, yes, I am optimistic, but I trained to be optimistic. I am resilient, but I trained to be resilient. I am not naturally any of these things, none of them, but I understand how to bring more of them into my life. And then they're muscles that I have learned to flex. But these are this, my nickname was grumpy as a kid. You know, I was like the embodiment of negativity. That's certainly not who I am today. Yeah, look at you now, right? So I learned to live this way. This was absolutely a learned state of doing. All right. Let's take a break. Take a full breath in and a slow releasing breath out. And relax the body as you soak up our conversation. Ah, I hope that felt good. Okay, now that we're a little bit more relaxed, can we be real? I think our morning routines, well, they've gotten a little out of control. You might not have time in the morning to meditate because you're busy doing other things like trying to get to work or getting the kids off to school. And this is where my app, Pause, Breathe, Reflect, comes in because I built it for busy people with a whole bunch of shorter practices. So if you don't have 10 minutes in the morning to meditate, cool beans. You're human after all. But I bet you have five times throughout the day when you have two minutes to practice and let go of stress and bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. So today, Download Pause, Breathe, Reflect for free and begin to stress less, sleep better, and join a community of like-hearted humans rippling something worth rippling into the world. All right, let's go back to our conversation and celebrate the Kintsugi within us all. So as you're living this way now, When you have a challenging moment, when life happens and you might feel maybe grumpy or you're just feeling the feels and you're not forward facing yay in that moment, what's that like for you and maybe the other people around you? Because I wonder, is there pressure to always be yay and on, if that makes sense? Because with my work and my story, at times I feel like, well, people need me to be like optimistic and happy and joyous. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I just, I feel sad. And the people around me sometimes have some challenges with like, oh, that's a different side of you. One that I don't necessarily see all the time. So I'm curious, does that happen to you at all? And, And if so, in what ways? So I only know how to show up as I am. And some days that is absolutely gloomy. And some days that is absolutely cranky. And some days that is absolutely bursting with excitement and joy. What I know is that I have this toolkit and I can reach into my toolkit to 
help me deal with the crabby, deal with the anger or the anxiety or all that. I have the tools. So for me, it's like, okay, recognizing what's going on for me today. Like, why am I showing up this way? What do I need more of? Like, let me look at the health chart. Did I not get a workout? Did I eat like crap? Did I not protect my sleep? Did I not make my bed and I'm feeling out of control because I didn't have that sense of accomplishment first thing in the morning? Like, what's happening for me that I'm showing up this way? I mean, I'm very, very self-aware now so that I can absolutely dig into the toolkit and be like, you know what? This just might be a flower power moment. I think I just need to go buy myself some flowers or maybe I need to get my butt outside. Maybe I haven't had my, my vitamin D fix or my fresh air. Maybe I need to phone a friend. Maybe I'm craving connection. Like I know that if I'm showing up anything other than full of yay, I need a tool from the toolkit. Got you. All right. So key question here, what flower does it for you? I love hydrangeas. I have hydrangeas planted all down my backyard and they make me so endlessly happy. But I love all flowers. I love arranging flowers. I love getting like a crappy $2 grocery store bouquet and turning it into five glorious bouquets. During the pandemic, I always joke, I would go to the park and pick the daffodils because I was like, I'm sorry, I need fresh flowers in my house and this is going to save my sanity. So I'm going to the park with scissors. Awesome. (laughs) That's so great. That's so fantastic. I love it. Well, mine is of sunflowers. I grew up across from a sunflower farm. Oh, that's cool. My sit that reminds me of my sister. My sister loves sunflowers. Yeah. So sunflower is definitely my jam. That will brighten my day any day of the year. So along the way, since those days in high school, you've learned a whole bunch, you've studied, and then you came in recently into a pretty big medical decision, mm-hmm. uh, surgery for you. And I didn't know if you wanted to talk and share about that. Yeah. So one year ago this month, I had a preventative double mastectomy with reconstruction. And it was a tough decision. My mom had breast cancer twice. Nearly every woman on my mom's side of the family has had breast cancer or is battling breast cancer currently. I lost my dad to pancreatic cancer. I'm not at liberty to talk about all of my family members, but we have a ridiculous relationship with cancer. I had incredibly dense breasts and I was on top of my screenings, like getting constant screenings, but it would be because of my dense breasts, follow-up MRIs and sonograms. I had a lump, which we had to have biopsied and like, you know, waited the days to have the results. And like that waiting is no fun. And then ultimately that was benign, but it really prompted my breast surgeon to say to me, we need a clearer picture of your history here. When my mom had breast cancer the first time, like genetic testing wasn't a thing. So she hadn't had any genetic testing and I had never had any genetic testing and my doctor ordered it just to sort of give us like a clear idea of what we were dealing with. And unfortunately it showed a change in the check two, a change in my check two gene Um, which like BRCA1 and BRCA2 puts you at a higher risk for breast cancer. And my husband and I sat down with the genetic counselor and we sort of looked at the big picture of my risk. And unfortunately, with the family history, the personal history, the dense breasts, and now this genetic variation, the risk was higher than we wanted to deal with. His mom, my my mother-in-law had breast cancer. I lost my father-in-law to kidney cancer. So we just my husband and I kind of looked at each other and we're like, why are we going to mess around? Like if you can take charge now when you're otherwise healthy, when we have good medical insurance and you're in a, in a good spot to recover, let's do this. And that's what we did because you know, I've seen chemo, I've seen radiation. Like I know what these surgeries are like. And it just felt like I'm otherwise healthy and strong. I want to do this right now on my own terms. I want to make this decision before my body makes it for me. And it was a very empowering to be able to have that genetic information to make that decision. A lot of feelings, you know, I mean, it's a major surgery. It was really hard, both emotionally and physically, because there's certainly these moments of like, wow, I feel a little guilty that I got to do this when other breast cancer survivors, including some of my best friends and my family members, didn't get to do it on their terms. And I, I always talk about coming home from the hospital. It was like kind of funny. So my daughter had had like school pictures that day and shared a brush. 
and came home and I couldn't lift my hands or anything and I'm all bandaged up and she shared her brush with me and put my hair in a top knot and in the process gave me lice. Oh no. Because she had gotten lice from school pictures. And so I wound up with lice, my daughter wound up with lice, my two sons wound up with lice and my mother who was staying with us all wound up with like heads full of lice my first night home from the hospital. My husband's bald, so he was fine. And I think the beauty in that happening was very much this moment of like, I thought I was in charge, right? Like I'm getting this surgery because I'm in charge. I'm proactively making this decision. But it was a very beautiful reminder that we are never actually in charge of anything but one thing, and that is always our reaction. And so if I can't laugh at lice right now, and the fact that I can't shower for 12 days because I have drains hanging over my body, and I can't raise my head to scratch the lice that are in my head, and even just saying lice, you feel itchy. So just imagine a head full of lice. And it was sort of like, it was nuts. And so we had to have a lice lifter come to the house. She combed olive oil through my hair picked all the lice out, then had to braid it and put it in a shower cap. Because when you, I mean, my first day home from the hospital, I have four drains off of my body. I am all bandaged up. I mean, I can't take a shower. I can't lift or move my arms. I mean, the last thing I was going to do was, like, there was nothing I could do except comb olive oil through my hair, pay a lot of money for this lice doctor to come back three times. I mean, it was crazy, but it was also a gift right? In all adversity, there are these gifts. And it was just this like cosmic reminder of I get to control my reaction and not much else. Absolutely. There's a great Viktor Frankl quote. I'm sure you know of it. You know, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our growth, our freedom. It is a quote that I've lived by through like what I've gone through, just trying to make that space as long as possible. So you make it a little bit longer, you can see more options, and you get to choose how you wish to respond to something. So I never in a million years would think that I would have to, pre an interview, give a lice trigger warning, but I might have to for this one, but because I know for some parents, it's quite triggering if their kid has... It's it's awful. awful. It's like the worst thing ever. We haven't been through it as a family, but we know people who have, and it's our greatest fear, but we've gotten through most of school. So fingers crossed, we'll keep it that way. Well, we love our scars. So you have now some scars, right? So we all have some emotional scars and some physical scars. So I want to go back to that two-part question that I asked you earlier. So now, after going through all that you've gone through, what is your relationship now with perfectionism? Um, I'm not a perfectionist. I'm pretty easy on myself. I think that... um... I just care a whole, I just care a lot less. I'm going to be 48 this month. I've outgrown vanity. I've outgrown giving a I mean, that's just the simple truth. Like I don't, I don't really make space in my life for people who drain me. I call them energy vampires. Yep. Um, people, places, and things that don't light me up. I avoid, I hide from, I cancel. And I do it without apologies. I just don't want toxic energy or any of that in my life. And I don't, I don't expect perfection from myself anymore. I just don't. Perfect. Perfect answer. Because we're all just perfectly imperfect anyway as, as humans. So as we look to round out our conversation, I know as editor-in-chief for Women's Day, you get to speak to a lot of women. And as we go through this moment in time, people have talked about the importance of this moment, but every moment is important. We've talked about this being an inflection point, which it may be, you don't know until you look backwards. But when you talk to the people in your life, the women that read Women's Day, what makes you most optimistic about the future? Taylor Swift. (laughs) I know, right? Like, remember, like, there was a period of time a few years ago where Oprah thought she might run for a president. Yeah, and I wish Swifty would. Yesterday, I was like, maybe Taylor can bring us together because she seems to be bringing everyone together. And could like Beyonce be VP? Yeah, that would be like, like, and what a cabinet. That would be a great, that would change. Right? I think we have to do a little petition maybe, like a, a move on petition and get Taylor into 
2024 or 2028 or something. Like, you know, she's going to change the world. As she already is. You know, think about like what kind of ripple she's put into the world since she started her tour. And then the movie over the weekend. My daughter saw it twice. Wow. Already? Already. We went Friday night with all the cousins and my mom because we're actually going to Switzerland to see her show this summer. No way. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. I'm so happy for you. Somehow, 11 grandchildren, It like I, my mom is a widow and she very much lives like, there's no inheritance. I'm going to spend every dime I have making memories and her granddaughters like in a rowdy sleepover somehow convinced her to buy these tickets in Zurich and- I mean, it's just crazy beyond crazy, but we're all so excited. All right. Do you have a favorite? We believe here that music is medicine. Oh, yeah. So do you have a favorite Taylor song that when it comes on, you turn it? I have August is stuck in my head. The August song is stuck in my head. But I did go viral dancing to shake it off. So I can't hate on that either. No, that's a good one. Hey, that's a good one to live by. Yeah. Right. I like that. And we're huge Taylor fans. I'm a girl dad times two. So we've seen Taylor from the very beginning all the way through big arenas. All right. We also believe that movement is medicine. So if you have to move, we talked about the treadmill. So this might have already been answered, but if you had to pick a movement, a form of exercise, what would you pick as a favorite? So I don't really like the treadmill that much. So I was the fitness director of Self Magazine for nine years. So I've been a certified trainer for 20 years. Movement is a major part of my life. I was a soccer player growing up. I had to relearn my body during periods in my life. So I went from being like a 330 marathoner and like really like a runner to then being more of a gym girl. I love the community of a classroom environment. So I was doing like the orange theories and the rumble boxing. I love hot yoga. I love SLT, which is basically like Pilates on crack. But after my double mastectomy, I really had to do an about face as I like regained my strength and I became Forrest Gump. So never in my life had I walked before um, and walking became really, really powerful for me. It became so many different things. And I sort of developed all these different types of walks. So I do walkie talkies where it's about connection and I'm calling someone or talking to someone. I do entertainment walks where I'm listening to like true crime or music. I do quiet walks where it's just about really kind of pausing and appreciating nature with my dog. And then I do learning walks where I'm listening to like the daily or a book on tape that I need to, like that I'm going to be interviewing somebody and I want to learn something. So I walk at least 10,000 steps every day. And that's really become a big part of my medicine. And then I discovered Bar Method, which has been incredible for me because it has slowed me down and helped me to be more present in my body and to move smaller with more intention. And I've really enjoyed that. And I do that like five days a week. All right. Walk, Megan, walk. And SLT, that ain't no joke. That is a workout. No. And I used to be like a regular, regular. I just went back a couple of weeks ago and it was just like a fun, it was fun to know that my body still knows how to do that after even massive surgery and a long recovery. I can still hold my own in an SLT class. Very cool. So we'll get you out on this question. So for someone who wants to become more resilient, can you share one or two things to help them start? Because certainly you've studied this topic, you've lived it, you are it. Where would someone begin? So I always think it's really important for you when you're in something that seems really insurmountable to first turn inward and do what I call the three A's, which is accept, acknowledge, and then take action. It's accepting that it's okay to not be okay, right? Like accepting that, like it's it's not okay, accept it, right? You can't control it, accept it, then acknowledge that this is not what you wanted. This is not good. And if you need to cry in the shower, cry in the car, cry in your closet, and really acknowledge how bad this thing is, 
then you can take action. And so I always find is accept, acknowledge, take action. And action can be a micro action. The point of the action is to create onward momentum, to create forward momentum. So what's a tiny little positive thing you can do to begin to create momentum, to shift the tide? And that's really what I do. And then I'm once I'm able to do that, then I know I need to lean into connection. And sometimes when we're doing something really, really hard, we want to retreat and we want to hide, but we need other people. We really need other people. We need our network. We need our connections. Maybe whether that's you call your sister or, you know, call a friend from high school, somebody who can you connect with? Because we need each other. We need networks. I think laughter is truly the best medicine. And science says that we don't lose our funny bone in the, the heart of really hard things. And when we're able to really make fun of the pain, it's even more effective, according to research. I will never forget coming home from the hospital. Like I'm in a wheelchair. I've got four drains hanging off of me. And my breast surgeon looks at me and he goes, okay, Megan, you're a T-Rex. Just imagine you're a T-Rex. Keep your arms at your sides and you can move your hands because you're a T-Rex. And I looked at him like he was out of his freaking mind. But then I laughed out loud and I adopted the T-Rex as my mascot. I wound up getting like a cashmere T-Rex sweater. I baked T-Rex cookies and being able to laugh at the fact that I couldn't raise my hands over my head and that I was channeling this T-Rex made me feel more in control of my circumstances and therefore helped me to cope more effectively and efficiently. So is there some humor in whatever it is you're going through? Can you poke a little fun at your pain point? Because it is wildly effective in giving you these resilient strategies. We said it again, and I'll always share your stories. And whether that means you overshare to the cashier at Target, or you overshare in therapy, or you tell a friend, we have to tell our stories. We have to get it out. Because when you just replay the bad in your head, you ruminate. And that is really, really debilitating. You will never be able to move through something if you get stuck in your head. Those are just a few strategies. I mean, I talk in the recharge chapter of my book, a lot about building resilience and different resilient strategies, but those are a few that are very effective for me. Perfect. So if people want to learn more about your story, maybe get some tips on how to share their story, where should they go? You can check out my website, which is Megan, M-E-A-G-G-H-A-N-B Murphy.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there, uh, see what I'm up to on TV and social. On Instagram, I'm at Megan, M-E-A-G-H-A-N-B Murphy. Um, and I do something called at the yay list, which is just like a kind of a feel good, good news social media site. All right. Yay. We did it. Yay! We did this we interview. Did we did this conversation. Thanks for having the time to come on and share your story. I really appreciate it. I love the energy you're putting into the world. The world needs more Megan Murphy's in my opinion. So thank you, Megan. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it, Michael. Yay, we did it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Megan. Don't you just love her energy? I think the world needs more Megan Murphys in it. We need her ripple and we need yours as well. So together, we can celebrate our golden symbols of strength and resilience. When she was speaking, I wrote down a whole bunch of notes you might have as well. If you did, I would love to hear what you took away from our conversation. Here's what I took away. One, Megan shared the importance of community. We need each other when we go through hard times. And the importance of having a mentor or a family member or a friend or all of them to help us through our challenging moments. I would call this your Peloton. Hey, I'm a cyclist. I can't help myself. In a Peloton, we ride with each other. We bring out the best in each other. So Megan's first point that I wrote down the power of community. Point number two, when we're going through something difficult, it's easy to think that it will last forever, but it won't. This moment too shall pass. There'll be a point in time in the future when things won't hurt as badly. It won't suck so much. And we can look back at the moment we're going through, that difficult moment, and realize it led to something. It led to our growth. 
So number two is all about this moment, two shall pass. Number three, we don't have control over much except this, how we respond to life. Much like the first arrow, second arrow story that shaped my last bad day framing of my accident, things will happen in life. We don't have a lot of control or any, but we have agency. We get to choose how we respond to our moments. So know that we always have a choice in that. Now, the bonus is this. We agree that Taylor Swift can bring us together. So who's up for Taylor for president in 2024 or 2028? If you're on board, let me know. And let's see what we can do to influence Taylor. I do believe Megan could be right. Taylor can bring a whole bunch of us together. So there you have it. Another conversation about resilience, a chance to celebrate our Kintsugi. Okay, time to switch gears. Here's where I could use your help. If you could share, leave a comment, a rating, you name it, all of that or some of that, this would be a huge help to what we're trying to do here at Kintsugi. This moment that we're living in calls for resilience. It calls for us to come together and be thoughtful about how we're living. We need these stories to help us through our difficult moments. So when you share and comment and like and all that jazz, it does something to the algorithm that I don't understand, but it helps other people find what we're doing here at Kintsugi. And the mission that we have at Pause, Breathe, Reflect to help us slow down, come back to our breath when we have a challenging moment, and to remember we've got this because we travel together. And this is how we put a beautiful ripple into the world. So until next week, do just that. Keep rippling something worth rippling. <laughs>